Welcome to the Theology Podcast. It's great to have you here today for a fun interview that we're going to, going to have in a minute. But before uh, our special guest introduces himself, we'll introduce ourselves because we d- we assume nothing. We 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 take uh, we don't take anything for granted. You, you this may be the first time you've listened to the show. Anyway, so I am C.R. Wiley. I'm a pastor. I serve a church in the Pacific Northwest. I've written some things, and the latest book I've written is in the House of Tom Bombadil. And I've been a professor of philosophy and real estate investor, yada, yada, yada. All right, you, Tom. I'm Tom Price. I teach systematic theology, uh, ethics, and philosophy. One of the places is Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. Glenn. I'm Glenn Sunshine, Senior Fellow at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview, Ministry Associate at Reflections Ministries, retired history professor, um, recent grandparent, uh, a whole bunch of other things. <laughs> nice, nice. Now, our special guest is none other than Douglas Wilson. Hey, Doug. Hi. Good to see you. Hi. Yeah. yeah, good to be with you. As just mentioned, I'm Douglas Wilson. I'm the pastor at Christ Church in Moscow, Idaho, which is up in the panhandle of uh, Idaho. Um, that's my day job. And I uh, write, I blog at Blog and May Blog. And my most recent book is Mere Christendom. Uh, so that's um, that's who I am. Yeah, yeah, that's a that's a worthwhile conversation too, mere Christendom. But we're not going to talk about that one today. You no, got uh, actually, if I can interject, yeah, Doug, you have the finest blog title in existence. <laughs> <laughs> I got to tell you, I love that name. It's a very Chestertonian kind of uh, blog title, which uh, yeah. is a segue into the subject. You've got a little book that you published here recently entitled Chestertonian Calvinism. And yes. that's what we want to talk yeah. about. Uh, yeah. So give us a little picture of what is this thing, Chestertonian Calvinism. Okay, so um, Chesterton was one of my literary mentors. Uh, another one was C.S. Lewis. Now, one of the things about Chesterton is that he is simultaneously edifying and exasperating. Uh, <laughs> you're reading along and there's just brilliance here and brilliance there and then there's a then there's a howler of some sort. And and you think, "Oh, what are you what are you doing, man?" Um, one of the howlers basically uh, and this comes up again and again in Chesterton's writings is his antipathy toward Calvinism. He just <laughs> He never he never misses a an opportunity to take a swing at Calvinism, and uh, so that's one thing. But then, on on the other hand, there was an essay of, of C.S. Lewis's where he's talking about. I think it's in his essay on Bunyan, but it's a it's in his book Selected Literary Essays, where he is talking about the early Puritans, and he is saying that the all the connotations that go with the term puritanical have to be banished from our minds when we are talking about the first generation of Puritans, the early Puritans. And he said, and Lewis said, if there, if I may, without disrespect, use the name of a great writer and a great Christian and a great Roman Catholic, uh, they, the Puritans, were much more Chestertonian than their adversaries. And that's, that is where the germ of this uh, came from. Uh, there is a type of navel-gazing Calvinism that came later that uh, that Chesterton would do right to be 
to be uh, hostile toward um, introspective, morbid introspection. Uh, but the early the early Puritans, the early Protestants, the early Calvinists were not like that at all. And so taking my cue from Lewis, you know, me and Lewis, you're making the same one. That's why I'm, I'm, hiding be, I'm hiding behind Lewis on this, on, on this point. Um, uh, basically, I, I think that Calvinism is altogether lovely, provided the people who embrace it understand it the way the early Protestants did, where it's it's liberation from scruples, not getting tangled up in scruples. And that's what Lewis was talking about. And so what I, I, I had a number of thoughts about it, and I thought, you know, Chesterton would be highly annoyed to, at the title of a book, Chestertonian Calvinism. <laughs> and, so, and so that was, I thought, an excellent reason for naming it that. <laughs> well, yeah, well yeah, heaven knows, Doug, that's unusual. You never try to annoy anybody. <laughs> <laughs> Only when they're deceased. Well, the fun thing, too, to think about is that <laughs> Chesterton, in terms of his own kind of uh, jovial disposition, uh, is very uh, Calvinistic in the sense you're describing. Uh, oh, and yeah. that's another irony of this, is that he's kind of the embodiment of what you paint as being the, the first generation of Puritans in their outlook. Yes. When he um, attacks Calvinism, it's pretty clear that he doesn't know what he's talking about. It's, yeah. it's not that he sees and understands and articulates what the uh, Calvinists are maintaining. It's it's a misunderstanding that he is going after. And the kind of Calvinism that I want to represent is represented well by the ebullience of someone like Chesterton. He's a man who acts like God is in control of everything. Uh, so when I was, when I got out of the Navy uh, and I went to university after, after the service, I majored in philosophy. And in the first year, the first year of studying philosophy, I, uh, I've discovered Chesterton. I read the first book I read of his was Orthodoxy. Yeah. And that, that book was sort of a lifeline of sanity uh, for me. I was majoring in philosophy, right. but frequently my thought was, why are we talking about this? <laughs> yeah, <that's right. laughs> what, what's going on? <laughs> right, right. And, and orthodoxy was just sort of this bracing, God is in heaven, yeah. man is on earth, you're finite, you don't know what you're talking about. Um, that kind of bracing, the apostle of common sense. He was right. just really good for my, he was really good for my soul. Uh, but I don't see it, the way he was good for me was not at all at odds with the way Calvinism did my soul good either, rightly right. understood. Right. Well, this gets us into a couple areas that I think are really worth exploring. One is, you know, the value of, uh, you know, studying philosophy, just generally speaking, but then the hazards of studying philosophy, generally speaking, <laughs> and, having, <laughs> and having someone like Chesterton to kind of be your, you know, sort of your, your, your companion as you are, right. you know, wading into those waters. But the other thing is, um, Chesterton, his background is, is fascinating. You, you spent a little time in the book talking about his, his uh, childhood, uh, his education, and stuff yeah. like that. Let's get into that a little bit. Yeah, it's, it's hard for us to imagine viewing Chesterton from uh, in, in the rearview mirror. 
but he went through a real uh, identity crisis, existential uh, crisis growing up. He was smart enough to know and understand the implications of ideas. And he was a child of uh, modernity and uh, went to art school, didn't graduate from art school, but he went to art school and imbibed all the, all the gunk of the, of the modern hubris, hubristic era. Uh, and it, it caused him to uh, crater, you know, just, uh, this is, um, this is hopeless. Uh, he was brought to faith in part by his future wife, uh, Francis Bogg. And uh, first he came into the Anglican uh, communion and, well, and actually he was, had been baptized, I believe as an infant, as an Anglican, even though his parents were kind of Unitarian types. He was baptized in the Church of England. He comes to faith, um, coming back into the Church of England, and then later converted to Roman Catholicism. Um, but he went through a real dark night of the soul, uh, and it, he and he's so full of life and insight, and it's hard for us to imagine that personality going through that dark a valley. But he did. But he did. So one of the things that fascinates me, Doug, about Chesterton is that he's a bohemian. You know, yeah. he, his, his <laughs> you know, you don't grow up. Uh, I, I have a kind of bohemian background as well. And it's a very rare thing for people who are coming out of that kind of milieu to turn out like Chesterton. <laughs> you know, any, any thoughts about that? Yeah, he, he was a character. Um, and sort of like... Uh, um, you know, one time he took a shot at Oscar Wilde, who was also who was also that kind of character. But for Oscar Wilde, um, uh, Chesterton said something. Oh, we can we can repay God for a glimpse of a sunset. We can pay for it by not being Oscar Wilde. Um, but, what he, <laughs> <laughs> um, but he was uh, he. Uh, I don't want to sound make this sound disrespectful, but. But Chesterton had a, a shtick, you know. He he had a um, a way of presenting himself. He was in in a certain measure. He was in show business, and yeah. knew, he, he was a journalist and flamboyant and out there and memorable. Um, yeah, and uh, he was sort of like uh, I would say the only other character like that would be our modern writer Tom Wolfe, who. Yeah who went in sort of a, a surprisingly conservative direction at the older, yeah. he, the older he got, but he remained a character to the end yeah. of his life, you know, that, dressed that, all in the white and the white. Suit, the yeah. 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 Um, <laughs> so Ch yeah. Chesterton was, was like that. And he basically, he was a bohemian type, um, culturally, but he thought like a Christian thought and reacted and taught like a Christian. Yeah, and I also think there was a kind of even blue collar sensibility to him. He he, I think oh, yeah. uh, admired uh, just the everyman. You know, he 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 didn't he wasn't overly impressed. Uh, I think with say cultured elites, he, he had a, he had a way of he was very comfortable. I mean, after all, he with you know you think about his debates with Shaw, he was a guy yeah. who uh, swam in those waters like a 
whale. <laughs> he was a big man <laughs> yeah. and, and displaced a lot of water. But at the same time, uh, he was a gracious guy. So like sometimes you hear the term winsome today and people have a certain sense of what that means, but I don't think they mean Chesterton, but if they did no. mean Chesterton, I would be on board with it. <laughs> you yeah. know what I'm saying? Yeah. So, the, yeah, the, mod, the modern approach to winsomeness is to split the difference. Okay. Um, you're over there and I'm here and maybe I can, let me see how many things I can throw overboard of my convictions to make me more palatable to you. That's, that's the modern understanding of winsomeness. What Chesterton did was he articulated what he believed and defended it to the hilt and did it in a manner that was calculated to win the respect of adversaries. So he, he would travel around, he would debate Shaw. You mentioned his size and his debates with Shaw. Um, he was, he and Shaw were, uh, friends, not just, they didn't just do the thing. They were, they were friends. And, uh, one time Chesterton, who was very large, uh, Shaw walked up, and, Sh and Chesterton was an Irish beanpole, just a skinny little <laughs> scrawny thing. Mean Shaw, right, and, right. And, yeah. and so Shaw walked up to Chesterton and patted his stomach and said, <laughs> "What are you going to name the baby, Gilbert?" And and Shaw, <laughs> and without missing a beat, said, "Well, if it's a boy, John; if it's a girl, Mary; but if it turns out to be only gas, we're going to name it George Bernard Shaw." <laughs> <laughs> That's great. That's great. Well, that, but that, that also has kind of an edge to it. So there's, there's, there's a bite to the humor, but at yeah. the same time, it's, it's delivered in such a way that you can't help but laugh, you know, that kind of thing. Oh yeah. It's, it's like the, there's a twinkle in the eye or it's, it's, it's not, um, uh, it's good natured. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah. it's not, uh, he, he doesn't, um, he fights and he fights fair and he hits above the belt. But he's really fighting. Uh, and mm -hmm. C.S. Lewis makes a point about Chesterton in Surprised by Joy, where uh, he says that the, the dazzling display of virtuosity, his verb, Chesterton's verbal virtuosity, is because he's fighting. It's the swordsmanship, the, the movement of the sword is glittering, but the swordsman is not putting on a show. <laughs> he's, he's fighting. And... Yeah. Yeah. Uh, because he's fighting, that's his intent. And you can see the, um, in fact, Chesterton says somewhere, uh, the, the Christian who's fighting is fighting because he loves what's behind him rather than hating what's in front of him. Uh, mm -hmm. And that's that good naturedness is evident in, in virtually everywhere in Chesterton. Yeah. 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 Another point Lewis makes about Chesterton that I thought was really telling is he said his style of humor appealed to Lewis. Yeah. He said he doesn't tell jokes, he's not flippant, but the humor is an integral part of his argument. Yes, it's embedded in the argument. Which I thought, I thought was a brilliant comment. Yes, yeah. that's, very, yeah. that's very, his humor is part of the structure of his mind. Um, and, and it comes out in his arguments. Yeah, I think I think it, it'd be both of those points really hit to how how rich an apprehension of reality someone like Chesterton had, and I think similar as Lewis, similar Tolkien, MacDonald, uh, Traherne. I mean, there were figures in that world either influencing each other, but they were all drawn to. 
but you were, it was something very important you mentioned earlier as being a philosophy student in reading orthodoxy. This, this happened to me similarly. And it, it was that richness of what Chesterton had that the others didn't that yes. I, I always found compelling. And, and you're hitting on it, this notion of humor, this notion of joy, this notion of imagination to, to be able to capture dimensions that rationalism or these other kind of dry reductionistic philosophies couldn't handle that I think still make them very vibrant and, like you said, connect us to the richest forms of Christian faith, especially early Protestant thinking. Yeah, ab- absolutely. When, when I was doing my master's thesis uh, in philosophy, one of the things I was assigned to, one of the things I was told, I was doing it on free will and determinism. And and, and it was interesting because I was not yet a Calvinist at that point, but I was doing it on free will and determinism. And one of the things I, I had to do was I had to go up to the library and read in the philosophy journals. I had to read a certain amount in the, in the journals. And I remember going up there and, and getting journal articles and sitting there by myself in the library reading aloud so that I could maintain forward motion. You know? <laughs> I thought this stuff, this stuff reads like rapidly cooling magma. Um, it just, <laughs> and I think, who, uh, who are these people? What planet are these people from? And then when I when I turned when I turned to someone like Chesterton, who's talking about all the same great issues, yeah, but it's intelligible. Yes. The illustra- the the illustrations are windows that open you to the subject. They're not painted over. They're not uh, painted murals. They're windows. Yes. Uh, the humor is a window into the yes. argument. The um, and, and it's not like they're talking about complex complex stuff and Chesterton's talking about trivial stuff. Right. No, they're talking about the same issues. Yes. But Chesterton brings clarity to it, uh, and there's a certain kind of scribbler that just obscures everything under magma. Yeah, under the pretense of intelligence. I think yeah. uh, when I think about, you know, his background in the arts, it, is, it informs his writing. Uh, you've seen, I know, uh, his caricatures, his doodles, you know, and, mm-hmm. he's, and yeah. he describes, he describes like daydreaming about, there's this one, I can't remember where it's, where it's found, but He's describing laying on a bed and tr- and imagining painting on the ceiling with a very long brush. But but that kind of uh-huh. like like when you read Orthodox, you know, titles uh, chapter titles like the Ethics of Elfland. Yes, and he's yeah. talking about something really serious, like you said, but he, he's drawing it in in a, in a, with a smile. That's that's just absolutely correct. He's um, another thing I like to, and I think this lines up with the point we're discussing here. I like to point out how how rarely, if ever, Chesterton uses a footnote. Yeah. Um, <laughs> now, there are, frankly, there are times when he could have. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. There are times when a footnote would have helped, but you compare how rarely he uses footnotes to how many footnotes. He's in. Yeah. 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 Okay. uh, It's like an inverse relationship. Um, This guy had something to say. He was intent on saying it. And he wanted to say it to as many people as possible. So he wasn't ashamed. He wasn't ashamed to write for the public Mm -hmm. as a journalist. Uh, He's he's writing about eternal things for eternal beings. But the eternal beings are would would be everybody. 
it's not it's not that the academics are the only ones who are eternal beings. That's right. Everybody everybody is concerned with the great issues. Yeah. Everybody's made in the image of God. Yeah. Yeah, and it's it's fun to see just how influential even to this day he is. Uh, occasionally, I'll I'll stumble over some offhanded remark by some contemporary intellectual uh, praising Chesterton for something. And you never would have guessed that the guy had been, you know, he had, he had read Chesterton. You know, I remember seeing a a thing with uh, an interview with Marshall McLuhan, you know, the, the guy who was the, you know, kind of the father of of media analysis and and, uh, media ecology and all that kind of stuff. He, he said that Chesterton was, um, you know, the one who brought him to to the Christian faith and, Mm -hmm. and uh, Theodore Roosevelt. I remember seeing a, a, a photograph of his, of of his desk in the White House, and there was, I think it was one. I think it might have been Orthodoxy yeah. was sitting there on his desk. <laughs> right. yeah. Just amazing how how his stuff found its way into all these different places. Right. So when we think about this this approach, uh, and kind of the even kind of the I guess the the, the loss uh, we see in the reform world of sort of the the spirit and what that we're talking about here, how do we get it back? Um, do you have any thoughts on that? I mean, it's kind of fun that we can look to this Roman Catholic Chesterton, uh, yeah. as a, as some kind of model for us as Calvinists to become more faithful to our Calvinism. <laughs> let, me, can, let me throw something in first. Sure. Um, you know, you talk about the attitude of, of, um, you know, freedom, that you get among the early Protestants and the early Puritans and so on. People don't realize Luther was not the family name. The family name was actually Luder with a D. When he converted, now they had a habit in that period of always uh, translating names into Greek or Latin for academic purposes. He decided to change it from Luder to Luther from the Greek word eleutheros, meaning freedom. Mm. Okay. Yeah. So he he was pro- by changing his name, he was proclaiming the freedom that he had in Christ. Right. Well, that's kind of fun, particularly considering uh, the book "The Dumb Ox," which is uh, the biography of Thomas Aquinas that Chesterton wrote and his treatment of Luther in it. <laughs> doesn't, Luther doesn't come across very well. <laughs> right. But but it, but but getting to this this you know this thing that we're talking about here this joy this freedom this this kind of spontaneity what what do we need to do uh so um the probably one of the best things you'll ever read from c.s lewis is in his magnum opus which is english literature in the 16th yeah. century yeah. the first couple of chapters are sort of a uh history literary history of yeah. uh reformation era and uh, in there are a number of striking things that Lewis says about the early Protestants. There, uh, early Protestantism was saying farewell to all motive scratching, <laughs> you know, the internal introspection, that sort of thing. Lewis understood this, and that comes out in his essay on Bunyan, his comment about Chesterton, and in the first part of English literature in the 16th century. And what Lewis attributes it to is the preaching, basically the preaching of free grace, the um, sort of the, uh, the so recovering this ebullience that re- requires people 
to living to to learn how to live as forgiven. Yeah. Um, the gospel declares liberty to the captives, yeah. and we have to we have to preach the gospel as though it does that. Yeah. Um, and and then uh, the second piece would be to learn something about the early Protestants, the early Puritans. A, a, a great starter book on that would be Leland Ryken's book, uh, Worldly Saints, uh, where he he talks about it. Basically, he shatters one caricature after another uh, when it comes to the uh, the Puritans. They were not dour or sour or gloomy, and as Lewis points out in English literature. Um, their opponents didn't bring that charge against them. Protestantism was not too grim, but too glad to be true, he says. It, um, and, and so Lewis talks about the battle between Sir Thomas More and Tyndall, and Lewis is very clearly in Tyndall's corner. And he, he recognizes both of them as great men, yeah. but, but he is very, very sympathetic uh, to Tyndall. And this is the basically, I think, the secret sauce to the first century, century and a half of the Protestant Reformation. Now, some people want to say when the gloomy gusses started coming in, that they wanted to represent this as somehow uniquely uh, a Puritan thing. But I would say that that is a uh, a weed that has grown in every Christian garden from yeah. from Pentecost on da- on down, yeah. um, there there have always been the fastidious, the introspective, the yeah. you know the Syrian monks. The, you know there right. there are people uh, doing that, and it was just a matter of time before that particular weed began to grow in in the Protestant garden, and then thanks to Nathaniel Hawthorne and some and Smith Wigglesworth and other people. Uh, <laughs> Uh, that sort of, if, yeah. If they're going to hang me for a thief, I might as well steal something. If if they're going to accuse, <laughs> if they're going to be, accuse us of being dour, well, hey, yeah. maybe we ought to be dour. Um, yeah. That that was a late development, uh, yeah. and again, Lewis Lewis points this out in English literature. He said it, and I'm not necessarily agreeing with his exact assessment of where, where it started, but uh, Lewis says it's not until Thomas Cartwright. Uh, the English Presbyterian that we encounter the Puritan of popular caricature. Yeah. Okay, that's that's a late development. Uh, the early Puritans were full of beans. Uh, they they wore brightly colored clothing. Uh, my favorite example of this is John Owen. Uh, so I like to tell I like to tell astonished students that uh, John Owen was the quintessential Puritan. Uh, mm-hmm. theologian, and I own his commentary on Hebrews, which comes in seven volumes. Yeah. Volu- volume, and, the, and it's small font, right? <laughs> so it's uh, seven volumes, small font, commentary on one book of the Bible, and the first two volumes are the introduction. Okay? <laughs> and, <laughs> yeah. and you think, okay, okay, this guy is the quintessential Puritan, right? But if you <laughs> met him, you would think you were talking to D'Artagnan of the Three Musketeers. <laughs> um, you know, uh, uh, hat, plumed hat, yes. uh, lawn, lawn top boots. Uh, y- you would think, 
you're you're the Puritan theologian. (laughs) Right. Well, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) You know, the thing about the situation we find ourselves in is that some of the contemporary people that maybe come to mind who are stiff and dour actually think of themselves as champions of free grace. Uh, Right. But they're they're, uh, kind of fussy about it uh, and censorious Mm -hmm. about it. (laughs) That kind of thing. Don't get me wrong. I don't believe that we're saved by uh, big works or little works, right? We're not, we're not saved by tiny works, and we're not saved by great works. And, but that means that we're not saved by doctrinal works either. Yeah. yeah. Okay? We're yeah. saved by the proclamation of Christ. Now, I, I'd like to tell a little parable. Let's say you, you got up to the pearly gates, and there's a desk there. And St. Peter hands you a pencil, and you see a stack of paper there. And he says, uh, "We one final exam before you can come in to the, to, <laughs> to, to the blessed rest. You have to take your justification by faith alone exam. Um, <laughs> and, and so you look at that, that big, thick test. You look at the pencil, look at the desk, look at Peter, and you, and you hand the pencil back to Peter. And he says, very good, you pass. <laughs> right, right. I don't, I, I need to, I'm saved by Christ. I'm yeah. not saved by a 98 or above on my doctrine exam. Now, yeah. it's, uh, what I like to, the illustration I like to use, and I think this is very important, is I, it's, the di- it's the difference between uh, the electrician who wires your house and the toddler who can turn on the lights. Okay? The toddler doesn't have to understand uh, all the ramifications of sola fide in order to turn on the lights. Right? right? But, but I do want the presbytery exam when we're ordaining electricians. I, I want the electricians to know how to wire a house. If, if they don't get sola fide right, then your house is going to burn down. Bad things are going to happen down the road. You you really want to be scrupulous about um, the article of uh, standing or falling church, according to to Luther. You want to be scrupulous about that when it comes to y- your ministry. But there are all kinds of people who are confused on things that they ought not to be confused about who are nevertheless saved. And the reason they're saved is because the Protestants were right. Yeah. <laughs> we're not, yeah. we're, right. we're yeah. not saved by works. Yeah, I, no. think that's, I think that's very, very important point. I mean, I, I do this with teaching theology is, is a lot of times you can have these students that come in with this very hard, narrowed honing in of grace to just like three or four theologians they trust and everything else has got a, a, a you know, a, a serious question mark. But when I unpack right. the doctrines of grace and their implications, I said the truth in the gospel is not in competition with any of, th- any of this stuff. And so therefore, it's not a threat to it. And therefore, you can engage it and bring the light into it and force the light to shine into it. And you take what truth those early fathers had, and then you weigh the other stuff. You don't have to be yeah. scared of it. You need to be confident in the gospel rather than afraid of every little figure or thinker that may or may not have everything down to a perfect formula and yet get some of the the rich things that creation has given even through these fallen, limited humans that can help 
in our sharing the gospel in the world. So, yes, it breaks down that competition and puts Christ in, in the center center of it all. One time when I read uh, Anselm's uh, Curdeus Homo, um, a great illustration of this, I, a marvelous masterpiece. But then in the edition I had, it had a collection of Anselm's uh, prayers in the back. So I was reading, I read Curdeus Homo, and then I was reading his prayers, and this was clearly a man who loved loved the Lord. He was clearly a brother, clearly got it, clearly, you know, I'm going to enjoy uh, meeting him in glory. And then I got to the prayers to Mary. Um, <laughs> I thought, right, right. Man, man what, are you, what are you doing? <laughs> well, you take that wrong turn. <laughs> but the point is that that, that blind spot, uh, yeah. he had blind spots, unlike us, right? <laughs> um, so he had blind spots, and I can see that because, and this yeah. is Lewis again on the reading of old books. Yeah. Um, when I read old books, I can uh, more clearly identify their blind spots. If I'm reading 21st century writers, we often all share the same blind spot. Yeah. And so I need, I need to be cross-checked. So it's, yeah. it's really, edif- it remains edifying. So even when I ran into his prayers to Mary, that, that underscored how much I had in common with him, even yeah. though I'm a, as violent a Protestant as it's legal to be. <laughs> yeah, 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 that's, right. that's a great way to put it. I'm as violent a Protestant as it's legal to be. <laughs> but I, I think J.I. Packer, I think it's Packer, said that we are justified by faith in Christ. We are not justified by believing in justification right. by faith. <laughs> right. right. And, you know, that that's, I think, the you know, that I, I know people who are still trying to fight the wars of the Reformation against right. Catholics. Well, and while I've got while I've got a boatload of of uh, differences with with the Catholic Church on things, that doesn't mean that that Catholics can't be real believers, yeah. even if they're confused on their theology points, as I undoubtedly yeah. am myself. Well, yeah. speaking to speaking of Chesterton and having an appreciation for someone that, who's from a different theological tradition, uh, there's Bunyan. Uh, you, oh yeah, in your book, you know he no, you note that. Uh, even though Puritans are treated pretty harshly uh, in just about everything from Father Brown to, you know, like you said, anytime you had a chance. <laughs> uh, That's right. But when it comes to Bunyan, there's appreciation. Can you get into that a little bit? Why, why, why was yeah. Chesterton able to see good things in Bunyan? I, I, I think that, uh, first, I think that uh, Bunyan was a literary genius. Um, and it's sort of... Uh, it's sort of expected in uh, writers' workshops these days to sneer at Bunyan because allegory is not our allegory is not our jam. We do, we don't like it, and and Bunyan seems to be writing uh, sort of. You, I don't know if you remember those old Herblock cartoons, um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> where uh, every character had a little label sticking off of him, telling you, you know, what he was and stuff. Allegory seems to us to be ham-fisted. Um, and so it's just, it's not our thing, but, uh, Bunyan had sort of a pitch perfect ear for, uh, natural dialogue. He basically invented dialogue. He's just a staggering genius. And I think Chesterton was sensible enough and good natured enough to be able to see and recognize that. 
Um, it reminds me, uh, if you ever, I don't know if you've ever seen H.L. Mencken's obituary of Jay Gresham Machen. Um, it's, it's really something because uh, uh, Mencken says Calvinism occupies in my private cabinet of horrors. It's right next to cannibalism. <laughs> you know, so Mencken says, I, I just have a thing against Calvinists. But he said, Jay Gresham Machen was the real deal. He, uh, he understood his faith. He thought in terms of it. He was consistent with it. And basically, Machen won Mencken's respect. Mm-hmm. And I think it's the same sort of thing that happened with Bunyan. Uh, and interestingly, uh, uh, Chesterton does the same thing with Cromwell. Um, yeah. Uh, so Cromwell was a military genius. And, and so Chesterton says, basically, hats off to that guy. You know, he, he, um, he defeated uh, this untutored military genius, defeats the English uh, nobility on the playing field of battle. And Chesterton is a gentleman enough to see and recognize that, uh, even though he's an adversary. And yeah. he does that, and he does that with Bunyan, I think, as a fellow uh, writer and someone who sees how Bunyan is seeing the world. Yeah, yeah. I think there's also a place uh, in the book, your book, where you kind of, I guess, explore this a little bit when it comes to uh, the Reformed and what our aesthetic is. So there are a lot of folks out there who say that we don't have one. <laughs> and yes. my, 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 my conviction is that actually the early Puritans uh, knew what our aesthetic is, and it was of the verbal arts. Uh, yeah. And, you know, you have like Milton, you know, you've got uh, these great epic poets and uh, hymn writers and, and, you know, popularizers like Bunyan, who uh, were verbal artists. Uh, they, they, they were, mm-hmm. you know, they knew how to write. And um, I, I think we've lost that somehow. Um, yeah. And I don't think we, we look around and say, well, maybe there are people like maybe uh, Marilyn Robinson or somebody like that every once in a while crops up who, who claim right. to be part of the Reformed tradition and are, are you know, uh, appreciated more, you know, by the, by everybody. But, uh, it seems as though we've getting back to your earlier point, it's like, okay, there's this caricature of the reform mm-hmm. that we're dour and, uh, we're soulless and soulless. Yeah. yeah and soulless. And we're going to, we're going to live up to their expectations or, or right. down to them. <laughs> so we're not going right. to, we're not going to get into the arts at all, you know, because we're artless, right? Right. <laughs> all we care about right. is abstraction and propositions, right? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So, you know, you write a lot of stuff. Uh, you know, you, you write fiction, uh, you write commentaries, you know, you write, you know, topically. Um, and that's what Chesterton did. Um, you know, he, he was a, like my, like when it comes to the, my, my favorite books, you know, obviously there's orthodoxy and heretics, but, uh, you know, the man who was Thursday, uh, you know, the Napoleon of Notting Hill, those are my, those are my, you know, some of my favorite works of fiction. Mm-hmm. Um, how do we, how do we kind of get back to not just the, the sort of the joyfulness, but actually the literary kind of productivity? Yeah. So um, that's a great 
question, and I think it's the same. The answer is the same as when we say, "How do we get back to the joy? How do we get back to the ebullience?" I think that that's got to be an experience forgiveness, which comes from the preaching of the gospel. Yeah. Well, preaching the gospel is a logocentric activity. Um, when you preach the gospel, you are preaching the word, and you're driving people back to their Bibles, which is the word. Um, so Protestants invented the novel. That's our art form. And uh, I think the, the Lutherans are very musical people, going back yeah. to uh, uh, Luther. The, um, the, the, and the Catholics had a, uh, a long heritage of architecture and, and painting. And I think we can say credit where credit's due. But let's, yeah. uh, and without um, taking that away from the Protestants, the, the Protestants are not detached from the medieval church and what once before. If someone said, where was your church before the Reformation? I think the answer ought to be, well, where's, where was your face before you washed it? <laughs> right? <laughs> um, yeah, that belongs to that, us. <laughs> that, that, that's part of our, that's part of our that's heritage our too. <laughs> but when you, but when you focus on Protestants as Protestants, did, have we done anything aesthetically unique? And I, I think that, uh, Protestants are great artisans of the word. That's our, that's our heritage, and we have centuries of it. Yeah. Now, I think because because that's not the case as it's not as obviously the case anymore. I think that's because we have drifted from preaching the word, preaching the yeah. gospel. If the if the gospel is the driving engine of our worship services, and we are sort of headlong, headfirst into um, our logocentrism, then I believe that you're going to start seeing uh, distinctively Protestant voices coming to the fore again in the realm of letters. I, and I think that this is sort of a natural law. Even, even a, a quirky thing, if I could just throw this in, um, uh, Chaucer was prior to the Reformation, uh, but I don't, I, I don't mind uh, laying some sort of claim on him because Ch uh, Chaucer was sponsored by his patron was John of Gaunt. And John of Gaunt had another person that he was a patron for, a man named John Wycliffe. Okay. So Chaucer and Wycliffe are swimming in the same environment. And if you look at uh, the Canterbury table, Tales, the one decent cleric in there, the, you know, the Parsons uh, tale, when he quotes scripture, he quotes scripture in English. <laughs> right? What? 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 Um, so I, I would say that just as Wycliffe is the morning star of the Reformation, I would want to claim Chaucer as the morning star of Protestant let letters. Um, that, that sort of thing. I, but, but I think there's something inherently potent about uh, biblicism. So when you throw your, when you, when you soak in scripture and you understand, and you come to have it uh, as uh, Spurgeon said of Bunyan, if you pricked him anywhere, his blood would run bibline. He would, he would bleed Bible verses. And one of the things that has happened is Protestants have gotten a bad rap uh, from the critics because when the, uh, when the, when the critics read Protestant stuff, the older Protestant stuff, the critics don't know their Bibles. Yeah. All right. And so there are all sorts of illusions and 
things that they're being tapped into that just sail right over their uh, right right over their head. I, I was in a literature class once, um, being, uh, and we were reading something by Thomas Hardy, and uh, and I forget which one Thomas Hardy book it was, but at the near the end, there's this line uh, where Hardy says of one of the characters, uh, Ephraim is a cake half turned, which hmm. is which is from Hosea. And it's it's ref- and so Hardy has sort of got a neon sign uh, with a blinking arrow <laughs> pointing at this, and and the class was discussing is this person's repentance sincere? And um, I think, look, he's got a he's got a poster, he's got a billboard here <laughs> telling you. Can you read it? <laughs> <laughs> but if you don't know the illusion, who's Ephraim? You know, if you if you don't know, you don't know. So uh, I would say uh, some of it has been Protestant proclamation drifting away from hot gospel preaching. It's our own fault, in other words. And some of it Mm -hmm. is the fact that the critics, to be an educated man today, you don't need to be steeped in the King James version of the Bible. And it used to be it it used to be that whether you are a heathen or not. If you yeah. were not educated, uh, right. you were not educated unless you were uh, educated in that. Yeah, so bad now that you know you can throw in Shakespeare and just about the entire you know Western canon. You don't need to know, <laughs> and you can still right. be considered educated. Right. Yeah, well, you can you can see in that. I think uh, oftentimes, I mean, I think of, of it from the kind of the, the systematic angle. But the the same point is when when scripture when the rich picture of reality that scripture gives us starts to become fragmented. For example, when a word-centered faith gets ripped from the eternal word, Christ, who is the ground of both the logos of creation and redemption, then all of a sudden that word is also detached from creation and and redemption starts to take on a a Gnostic, if not anti- worldly character and even a it, it just loosens from anything it becomes nihilistic in a way and so oh, yeah. you can take yeah go ahead oh, i was i was amen because what happens yeah. is that it's detached from you you detach the word from the speaker you detach yeah. the word the signifier yeah. uh from the thing signified thing signified. everything flies every, everything flies apart and you are yeah. in a heraclitian uh yeah. whirlwind and yeah. nothing coheres, nothing sticks. Right, right. Yeah, another, and I think, another go ahead. direction on this is um, I've thought a lot about uh, Tolkien and Lewis as sub-creators. And it, particularly with Tolkien, um, Middle Earth started with words. It started yeah. with language. Yeah. And the yeah. very act of creation f- or sub-creation for Tolkien and Lewis as well imitates God speaking a world into existence. Right. Yes. You know, yes. So, yeah. I, so in a very real sense, I think that that is, is the closest we get to the kind of creation that God himself does by speaking yeah. a world into existence. Right. As, right. as it happens, I'm currently reading uh, George Gilder's most recent book, Life After Capitalism. It's a wonderful <laughs> book. and he, But he begins by talking about how the word information is primary and yeah. he's answering the the materialist superstition which mm-hmm. is matter matter in motion and right. gilder saying no 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 it's knowledge it's the word 
uh, and he appeals directly to um, the Gospel of John. In the mm -hmm. beginning was the Word. Yeah. Information is primary. Wisdom is yeah. primary. Um, the uh, the matter that's around us is simply the delivery platform. The right. the, yeah. the uh, information, knowledge, and wisdom is the is the is the salsa. Um, mm -hmm. m matter is just the uh, corn chip. <laughs> yeah, that's right. that, that's the way. I, that's the way. Actually, when when the more you one delves into patristic thinkers, one starts to realize that's what they're up to. That that the spiritual for them, which is the mind of God, the logos, is more real than the matter. The matter has less substance to it. It's the word right. that has the eternal word that is. And so, when the word becomes flesh, that is an, an addition to Christ. Right. Yeah. Right. And yeah, so, yeah. And, and that is the thing, and, and it really gives us an insight to realities that primary, the primary, and, and some will even say there's almost a, a concretion to spirituality in the way the ancients, the biblical world thought about it. Um, this is why when you get into the language about resurrected body and the material dimensions and the mortal takes on the immortal, this language is very rich. We're very removed from that. We tend yeah, to reduce everything to the, the least kind of reality there is when we talk about matter. Yeah, I, I, I think it's easy, easy to kind of pick on, you know, our own tradition, but I think this is a, such a pervasive problem. Uh, it's not as though there's some pocket of folks out there in Catholicism who are uh, championing this. I mean, their own, uh, you know, their own um, sort of, you know, I guess, um, poverty uh when it comes to their teaching and preaching secular society is the same way i mean you go to the great institutions of our society you know harvard or whatever you, you don't find anybody uh who really embodies this sort of uh rich understanding of of kind of the logocentric character of reality uh it's yeah. all hack work and okay. and jargon and uh what's the latest set of terms that we are all all supposed to, to parrot yeah we we've all lost it yeah yeah um getting to, to this sort of thing like one of the things about chesterton it's fun is you, you can i can pick up a book if i if if i don't know who wrote it or i don't see the cover and i start reading I say I can recognize Chesterton in like three sentences. You know, it's yeah. like this is Chesterton. Yeah. <laughs> Let's get into his style. Uh, yeah. you have any thoughts on that, Doug? Yeah. Um, again, I'd appeal to Lewis's discussion of Chesterton's style, um, where it's not like he, it's not like you have this substance of his argument, like so much frozen yogurt, and then you go you go to the the bar where they have the sprinkles and the M&Ms and gummy bears. And then you put, add the adjectives and yeah. the metaphors. You're not right. sprinkling uh, the style on top of the substance. Mm -hmm. uh, well, you are if you're a hack writer. But if you're a writer like Lewis and a writer like Chesterton, the, the imagery, the metaphors are an essential part of the argument itself. Um, they are, uh, is, and that's because Chesterton thinks that way. Is so. It's not like um, it's not like he comes up with a syllogism, and then goes home for a day and says, "How can I? How can I illustrate this?" And then looks up in a dictionary of illustrations and then sprinkles that on top. 
I think the illustration is there from the moment that he saw. It's yeah. it's it's simply part of the it's simply part of the seeing, and and you learn how to do this. I think you learn how to do this by reading people who know how to do it. Yeah. Um, and Aristotle says that one of the marks of genius is uh, ability with metaphor. You're mm-hmm. saying this this thing is like that thing, yeah. and they're not alike. And I'm going to put them together, and and th- there's a certain twist. Yeah. I think it's a glorious twist in the mind that enables us to uh, to do that. And one of the here's another uh, example: um, uh, P.G. Woodhouse. You know, if you read P.G. Woodhouse, mm-hmm. he's a master of the of the com a master of the comic metaphor. Um, but that means he's a master of metaphor, and he'll bring things together that just just astonish and surprise yeah. you. And if you if you read a lot of Woodhouse, read a lot of Chesterton. Um, Mencken is a pagan, but he does it as well. Um, there are there are people who are just gifted at that. If you do that, if, those who walk with the wise become wise. Yeah. Th- those who walk with the metaphorical become metaphorical, which is another way of becoming wise. Yeah. yeah this reminds me of Lewis's uh, comment concerning Aslan. I don't know if it was said about Lewis and Aslan or Lewis was reflecting upon, uh, you know, how he went about writing uh, and, you know, writing the Chronicles of Narnia. There's a tendency, I think, that people have that, just as you described, Lewis had this proposition that he wanted to make. And then he sat around thinking a lot about how do I illustrate this? Oh, I know a lion. I don't think that's how he operated at all. I just think he started writing about a lion (laughs) and he knew all of this associations uh, with, you know, scripture and line of Judah and so forth, and just developed it kind of in a kind of intuitive way. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, Lewis actually says that the Narnia stories began with an image that he'd had years before. And the image was of a little girl carrying parcels in a wood where it's snowing. And what does this have to do with anything? And then he's, and he started to write, and then at some point he says, and at some point a lion bounded in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, th- this gets at something too. So, like when we when we say that the maybe the sort of the, the the most natural place for the reformed to excel is in the literary arts. Uh, that doesn't mean that we are uh, not enriched in our literary arts with imagery, uh, visual imagery, right. yeah. or sensory data. It's just that we communicate it verbally uh right you know so there you know metaphor is all about you know seeing the connections and you know the sort of in reality spiritual things and physical things and how they correspond and and, you know uh give us some some sense of their common origin and and so forth Mm -hmm. yes uh, because living in god's world is all about making connections Mm -hmm. yeah Mm-hmm. Okay, in the verbal in the verbal realm in the in the writer in the realm of writing, you're doing it with this word and that word picture and that this other word picture. A great Puritan, uh, a great Puritan with, in this regard would be Thomas Watson. He is one of the most pithy and vivid Puritans out there, and he has all these homely 
illustrations and you go, whoa, whoa, it's just mind blown, <laughs> right, mind right, right. blown. And but of course, a, a great painter is going to be doing the same thing. And a great architect is going to be doing the same thing only in a different medium. A great musician is going to be doing the same thing only in a different medium. And then we're longing for the day when all these different sorts of artists can be communicating more readily instead of locked up in separate departments. But that's not going to happen unless we recover the idea of the university. And we can't recover the idea of the university without a una. Right right now, what we have is a multiversity. Uh, The people in the physics department have nothing to do with the people in the ag econ department who have nothing to do with the people in the English department or the art department. Um, But you can't have a una without Christ, who's the arcade that holds all things together. So when Christ is the arche, the logos, he holds all our words together, but he holds more than that together. He holds everything together. Right. Right. Now I want to play it with, with, with an idea here and just see what you do with it. So when it comes to writing, you've written a number of things. We've all written a number of things. Um, I get the sense when I read Chesterton that he just kind of sits down with a pen and starts rolling. It's not like he sits down, you know, and just, you know, charts it all out and has an, a detailed outline. I get the sense that he's just kind of it's almost stream of consciousness. <laughs> yeah. you know, he sits kinda, down. But he just has this way of, of doing it. He's a barrel and he sits down and opens the tap. Um, yeah. Yeah. And he's a glug glug machine. Uh, and there were, time, <laughs> there were times when he would be sitting there right, finishing up a column with the errand boy from the publisher standing at the door, uh, you know, okay, give me, give me what you've got. And I'm going to run down the street with it. So he was writing on deadline. He was right. You know, yeah, you're, you're exactly right. He would just simply open the valve and go. Yeah. 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 I think that that's actually another part of the key to Chesterton is that he was a journalist. Yeah. He had to, now, fortunately, he had a mind that would would accommodate it, but I suspect that the more that you write, the easier it becomes. Yeah. But I think this also kind of gets to different types of writers. So, like, when I think of Tolkien, his, yeah, I mean, Lord of the Rings and the, you know, all the tales that have been posthumously published, all that kind of stuff, he seems like, you know, he just never stopped writing. But he was a fussy, fussy guy. The stuff that was pu- allowed to be published while he was alive was pretty small <laughs> compared to all the other yeah. stuff. <laughs> you know, uh, my, my sense is with Chester is, is like there's nothing that hasn't been published that he wrote. I mean, it's like everything <laughs> yeah. went from yeah. brain, paper, Laund- out. <laughs> Laundry list. So uh, Lewis, Lewis once said of Tolkien that if you criticize something he wrote, he said either – his, he had one or two responses. Either he would tear it all up and start over, or he would ignore, <laughs> or he would ignore you completely. He was a fastidious. He was yeah. a fastidious perfectionist. So as he's mapping out the the Lord of the Rings, he's making sure that the travelers are in sync with the faces of the moon. You, you know, he's that kind of. He's, yeah. He was that kind of perfectionist, and uh, Lewis. When Lewis wrote The Pilgrim's Regress, for example, which was his first Christian book, he wrote it in three weeks. So um, he just sat down and out it came. And uh, and and it looks like the Narnia stories had the same thing. It looks like 
the Narnia stories are this hodgepodge of uh, minotaurs and uh, satyrs <laughs> yeah. and Santa Claus, Father Christmas. And what, what, what's what's Father Christmas doing in here? And then Mrs. B. <laughs> And this Mrs. Beaver has a sewing machine, and you think for crying out loud, where did they manufacture? <laughs> where did right. they manufacture this thing? Um, anyway, uh, right. so Lewis, and it looks like Lewis is just doing all this slapdash thing. Michael Ward's Planet Narnia shows that it was not slapdash at all, yeah. Yeah. and it and it really really works. But it, the fact remains that Lewis was more like Chesterton in being able to open the valve and have uh, a coherent thing come out than he was like Tolkien. Yeah. Well, we should probably wrap up. I mean, this has been a fun talk. Uh, yeah. Doug's been great to, yeah. to, to be with you here and, and talk about a subject that we all enjoy and uh, anything you want to kind of leave us with uh, related to this particular yeah. book or other, anything else? Yeah. You th made me think of something earlier. We just, uh, Canon press just recently released this. Yeah. It's yeah. Calvinist, Calvinist poetry. Um, and this was something I was provoked into by the topic that we're talking about, Protestant aesthetics. And yeah. what I wanted to do was um, answer the critics by assembling an anthology of Protestant Calvinist poets, uh, which I did. And I, and I, I put a few um, Easter eggs in there. Um, <laughs> there's a few. My big surprise, it won't be a surprise when I tell you, was being able to include Coleridge. Um, oh yeah, uh, who yeah, was yeah, yeah who was a Calvinist, and uh, he was an oddball. He was an oddball Calvinist, but he was a Calvinist, and ba basically, <laughs> yeah, we love our yeah. So basically, uh, I th I think that one of the best things that um, conservative believing Protestants can do is recognize the apologetic value of beauty. Yeah. I, I think we need to. I think we need to return to that, and we should return to where our, our uh, factory settings as Protestants should include a, a word centeredness. Yeah, yeah, great stuff. Yeah. Thanks a lot again, uh, Doug, for the time. Oh, it's my my pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Theology Podcast and making it all the way to the end. And uh, as your reward, you get to be reminded about. Patreon <laughs> and how you can support the Theology Podcast. And if you would do that, that'd be great. You know, people, uh, you know, in different phases of life find themselves in situations where they have to cut back a little bit here and there. And sometimes that affects, you know, folks like us. So there uh, is a need. We uh, do have to pay for the bills, you know, pay the bills to, to make this show happen. Uh, none of us take any money, but we have to pay people who do make the show possible. Uh, to do the job of getting it out there. And uh, so your gifts are appreciated that way. Anyway, uh, there's a link in the show notes. We'll also have a link to Doug's book. We encourage you to, to, to check that book out. Uh, it's, a, it's a lot of fun. Chestertonian Calvinism. Anyway, thanks again. Bye-bye. The Theology Podcast is a ministry of Trinity Reformed Church in Huntsville, Alabama. If you like this podcast, you might enjoy another of our podcasts, The Good Life Podcast, featuring Matt Carpenter interviewing experts in their field about how their work contributes to the good life.